from the gospel, which is kind of a bit strange and harsh reading, but it works. First, Luke sets the context for the story. Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now that is a subject bound to raise excitement. For them it meant the end of being downtrodden by the great empires of the day, Rome in particular. For us it means Jesus coming again in glory like what St. Paul talks about in today's epistle reading. It's easy for some people to be shaken when they think of all the things that will come with the end. In 2 Thessalonians, for example, we have that eerie and frightening figure of the man of lawlessness. Some call him the Antichrist. For some, the prospect of judgment is intimidating. For others, it's welcome because we generally expect it to fall on the other party, the other guy. Jesus' audience, too, thought that the kingdom of God would come as a final victorious coming of the Son of Man to knock heads and settle scores. But Jesus knows that for now, the revealing of the kingdom will not be anything like what they expect. It will be revealed by way of his death and resurrection and not by way of some direct razzle-dazzle intervention in the affairs of the world, at least not yet. In short, it will be paradoxical rather than plausible. So Jesus tells a story. A man of noble birth, he says. Jesus means himself here, for those in the know went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. That's through his death and resurrection. And then to return someday, date not exactly known yet. Sure, there will be some elements to the story that they are looking for, but then there is more that they are not looking for. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. We often substitute the word pounds. It's an amount of money. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a mina was not a whole lot of money. The soldiers of Mark Anthony thought that he was a tightwad when he gave them five times that much as a campaign bonus once. So this was not enough money to be buying out the store while the master was away. But as we can see from the results, the amount in this telling of the parable is completely meaningless. Unlike Matthew's version, the parable of the talents, which you may also know, here in this parable, each one receives the same. There's no sliding scale of five talents and two talents and one talent based on abilities, and certainly not based on merits either. This minor pound is grace, pure and simple, which doesn't look like a whole lot to the world. It's pretty easy to cheapen it when you think of God's kindness, his grace and generosity as simply being the business that he is into. Compared with their expectations for the kingdom, this is penny-ante stuff. 
and that helps to explain the side plot in the story. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That's the way it often is when people realize what this king is getting at, that he isn't the kind of king that they are hoping for, that he isn't coming simply to confirm them in the lives that they already are living and want to go on living. There's no prosperity gospel here, but something quite different. The paradox of going away into death in order to be elevated to royal status is no one's idea about how God ought to run things in his kingdom. Who, after all, wants to become a winner by becoming dead? The only thing that can make that kind of thing and the least acceptable, of course, is faith. The man was made king, Jesus goes on, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Remember, he had not only given each a pound, he had told them to put it to work. Even if putting it to work meant putting it in the bank. Interest rates then were between 5 and 20%, although, of course, the risk was higher than it is now. The first one came and said, sir, your pound has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 towns. But then comes the turning point of the parable when the third one comes up. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, what sort of fellow is this? He's obviously not so much concerned with how the master will come out in the end, but with how he, the servant, will come out. He is then self-centered, selfish, even narcissistic, too, I suppose. So his actions are doomed to be short-sighted in hindsight. He is not unlike the young man who is being interviewed by the owner of a movie theater for the job of usher. After asking the usual questions about experience and references, the owner then asked what he would do if a fire broke out in the theater. Oh, don't worry about me, I'll get out all right, he replied. Not exactly the point, now is it? The fellow in the parable is much more calculating, though, even if he ends up being no more sharp about it than the would-be theater usher. One might imagine this weasel going on. You see, I said to myself, watch your step. If he keeps track of every penny everywhere like that, even when it's not his, just think of how mad he could get if you should happen to lose something that is his. And so, sir, here I am, and here's your money in full and on time. Tell me I'm a good boy. No, roars the nobleman, twice as angry as anything the servant ever imagined. I will judge you by your own words, he says. You're not even a good weasel. If you knew I was such a tough customer, 
Why didn't you at least put my money into a savings account? What? You thought I'd be mad at a measly 5%? You think I'm not madder at 0%? <laughs> but you know something? That's not even what I'm mad about. Let's use some business language here. Look, I invited you into a fiduciary relationship with me. That's fiduciary, from the same root as faith. I didn't ask you to make money. I asked you to put this money to work, to exercise a little pragmatic trust that I meant you well and that I wouldn't mind if you took some risks with my giving you a life. But what you succeeded in doing is proving that you don't have a life. What did you do? You decided that you had to be more afraid of me than of the risks. You decided. You played it safe because of some imaginary fear. And so now, instead of having gotten yourself a nice new life as mayor of at least some village, you have only the crummy little excuse for a life that you started with. As a matter of fact, Weasel, you haven't even got that, because you know what? I'm going to take what I gave you, and just for fun, to show the outrageousness of grace, I'm going to tell those standing by to give it to that guy over there who already has more than he knows what to do with. Sir, they said, he already has 10. One can hear the master yelling, don't you get it yet? The amount is not the point. Number one, it is a gift that is grace, and my gifts to you will be blessed so that whoever has gets more and more and more. But number two, <clears throat> when I give you a gift, grace, forgiveness, or time, or life, or talents, or money, or whatever, I expect you to use it, to do business with it, keep it moving, like it reminds you in my prayer, forgive as you have been forgiven, not to take your gift and hide it in some safe deposit box somewhere. If you turn your heart into a bank vault, well, be careful or you might get locked up inside. It doesn't even mean taking a risk as far as the gift is concerned. You couldn't have lost the money in using it. This is the kingdom of God, grace, faith, after all. And that is never lost by risking it on the king's behalf. So for you, servant, to crawl in here and insult me, Mr. Risk himself, who is going all the way to the cross by telling me you decided, you decided that I couldn't be trusted enough for you to gamble on a two-bit loss, that I was some legalistic type who couldn't see beyond the result. Well, we could go on like this. But the point, I trust, is made. You have been given by God what you need. Things for this life, forgiveness and faith for the next life. It is a gift, and it will be blessed. To everyone who has, the Lord says here, more will be given. But it is a gift meant to be put to work. And the blessing of it comes in the using of it for the work of the kingdom of God. But as for the one who has nothing, and here we must understand who has been untouched by the grace given him, 
and so is ungracious. For that one, even what he has will be taken away. No one can fail who trusts God, who takes God at his word, and who steadfastly puts to work for the kingdom that with which he or she has been entrusted. Where do you see yourself in this word picture that the Lord has painted for us today? How will you put what God has entrusted to you in the coming year to his work? How will you show the fruit of faith active in love with your time and your treasure and your talents? Doubtless many of you will spend a good deal of time in the days ahead watching football. Football players usually have two goals. The first, obviously, is that line at the end of the field in the opposing team's territory where they have to get the ball in order to score. The other is their personal statistics. Did I run more yards, make more tackles, play my best? The goal may be as short as a first down or as long as a career best. There are varieties of goals, just as there are varieties of people. There are two goals associated with our giving through the church. One is the church's goal of mission and ministry to people. Our giving is translated into spiritual food and sometimes even physical food. You see that at the Thanksgiving dinners that's listed in the narthex to offer your help with that. It teaches children in our Sunday school and supports Christian education through our high school and colleges. It enables us to keep the heat on here in the church. On a cold morning like this, you probably welcome that and to have church services. The second goal is a goal for personal spiritual growth. We want to become more generous and Christ-like people. You are Christian people. You're Christ's servants. He has not only saved you and holds before you the joy of heaven with him someday, but he has given you the grace to recognize what he has done for you. He, through this place, St. John Lutheran, has enabled you to grow into the better person that you are through him. And in the very act of giving of your time, your money, yourselves, you show the love that has shaped you and formed you and continues to make you grow in that grace. God grant you a noble and generous heart. Amen. And may the peace of God which passes understanding keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.